chosen for the first seminar this season a subject which perhaps is more vital and more far-reaching uh, than might be first presumed. There is probably no school in the history of Western civilization that has more profoundly affected the course of human life for the last 19 centuries than the school of Neoplatonism. I realize that this will be challenged, or might be challenged, but I think as we proceed, the facts will be clear. As you know, a sentence taken out of a book has slight meaning when divided from its context. And there is no way of estimating Neoplatonism without first orienting it in the world of its time and conditions. So we must first prepare our groundwork by a general survey of the circumstances which made Neoplatonism not only possible but necessary. We know that 2,000 years ago Civilization was centered in the Mediterranean and Aegean areas. In this region, three great cultures flourished, the Egyptian, the Greek, and the Latin or Roman. If we examine history at about the time of the rise of Neoplatonism, we observe that all three of these great dominant cultures were beginning to show signs of internal weakness or had already fallen. We know that the glory of Egypt was past and the Egyptians were little better uh, than a colony of Rome. Greece was in the same predicament. The old days of the great academy had vanished. Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek religion was declining. The last stronghold of the old world, old way of the world, was Rome. Rome under the Caesars. And Rome was already beginning to feel the inroads of the barbarian hordes from the north. And Rome was tottering on the brink of its own collapse. Now three great cultures, three dominant civilizations cannot collapse or fail or gradually disintegrate and fall apart without producing a profound effect upon human beings. We live within systems, we live within patterns. And we know today what it means to experience insecurity in the patterns which are familiar to us. How much more, then, were these older people insecure when their entire system of culture was collapsing, when their religion was slowly failing, their sciences declining, their arts failing, their literatures and philosophies, uh, their ethics and morality, all these which are the foundations of enduring security were slipping away from these three great ancient cultures. In this period of tremendous internal uncertainty, it is inevitable that men's minds should have gradually turned toward a different perspective on life, a perspective that was best expressed, best revealed through the three schools that rose in this period, Christianity, Gnosticism, and Neoplatonism. All three share one common heritage, the heritage of disillusionment. All three appeared at a critical time in the life of the people of the region where they flourished. All three are marked deeply and profoundly with the prevailing sense of insecurity. Therefore, we have some understanding of the psychology of that time. 
Neoplatonism or the New Platonism claims its original inspiration and descent from the writings of Plato and his legitimate successors and disciples. Let us then pause for a moment and consider the relationship of philosophy to Greek life. To a very great degree, philosophy had divided Greek life very strongly. Step by step, it had overthrown the power of Greek religion. The Greek was more impressed by the value of his philosophy than by the importance of the state religion. Part of this was due uh, to such magnificent dialogues as those attributed to Socrates. Part was due to the natural instinct of philosophy in comparison to the elaborate pageantry of theology. The philosophers were mostly modest, moderate human beings. They did not believe in ostentation. They had very little time or consideration for elaborate rituals and rites, nor were they much addicted to the prevailing superstitions of their times. And although these men lived and flourished in the great golden era of paganism, sometimes called the Age of Pericles, as individuals and collectively, they never accepted or subscribed to the prevailing state theologies. Uh, they were discreet, they were respectful for the most part, sometimes not entirely so. But they felt that these systems of state religion were themselves becoming gradually encrusted with superstitions and were falling inevitably into the hands of privileged classes to be used as ways and means to further enslave and dominate the individual and restrict his liberty and freedom and his right to think. Thus, the philosophical systems of Greece, whether they be the doctrines of Plato and Aristotle or the more rationalistic concepts of the Stoa, all of these emphasized a reasonable, rational, natural world. Even when the deities are introduced, these deities are introduced in a rather matter-of-fact manner. They are not introduced with great solemnity, but they are accepted, interpreted, and organized and arranged to become part of a very natural, proper kind of world. A world in which, for the Greek, there was very little emphasis upon what we would term today mysticism. It is true that the Orphics were mystics, but by the time Orphic doctrine had passed through Pythagoras and Plato, very largely its mystical content had been redirected into fields of philosophy. The Greeks considered the human being and his salvation a very serious business. They considered it something that would call upon the greatest resources of the individual and the greatest learning possible to man. They had no concept of an easy salvation. They had no concept of an individual praying his way into grace. To them, to live well was hard work, demanding tremendous strength of character, dedication and resolution. And it was further part of their belief that the salvation of man depended upon the growth, development, and release of his own intelligence. That the individual could not subdue himself into a state of spirituality. He must unfold, extend, richen, and strengthen all the aspects of his character. The Greek philosophers also turned against the patrician system of their time. They had very little time or consideration for the power of wealth, family traditions, hereditary authority. Like Confucius, they held the individual to be the important equation. Not where he came from, not where he went, not what he had, not what he lost, but what he was. And their entire philosophy was built upon uh, the problem of improving and increasing the content of man and releasing into expression those potentials which they held to be eternal within man.
It is obvious from this approach that division existed in the Greek state on the level of philosophy and religion at a comparatively ancient time. And this division was not mended during the golden age of Greek philosophy. The interval was widened, and Plato's approach was a very natural, systematic, and understandable one. He sought to use the gods of his people as a means of advancing their own knowledge. He used them as the elements of a great symbolical or allegorical system, and he caused these gods to become elements in a great ethics, a great concept of life. Therefore, we realize that he gradually impersonalized the Olympian deities. He transformed them into what he affirmed to be their natural and proper state, namely names or persons attributed by men to principles, and that behind each deity as a symbol was a reality, a principle. These principles he called intelligibles because he affirmed and maintained that these principles had to be known by a process of conception. Man could conceive of them. He could not think of them as we use the term mentality. Intelligibles were conceptions in consciousness, archetypal beings, and these were the true gods. From these, men had created a descent of symbols by which these intelligible beings were caused to appear under forms or in guises and shapes which were called intellectual. And the intellectual deities were those which man could rationally contemplate and which he could conceive within his mind to a degree of understanding. The intelligible deities could not be essentially understood. The intellectual deities could be. Thus we see the traces of an important psychological doctrine. We see the gradual rise of ideas concerning the essential nature of the universe itself. During his long career, Plato passed through three distinct periods. The first of these might be termed his political career and uh, this led to the final disillusionment in which he decided that public office was not the best way in which he could serve his fellow Grecians. So he retired from, from politics and created his school and became a teacher, declaring it was wiser to be a teacher of men than a leader of men. This school continued for a number of years through the long and active life of Plato and perhaps the outstanding episode in the development of this school was the contact with Aristotle, who was brought to him as a young man and placed under his care. Aristotle became his most critical, at the same time most brilliant, disciple. And uh, the Athenian school is recognized as having produced these two extraordinarily different but remarkably enlightened men. In the third period of his life, Plato began to drift away from philosophy. He began to drift towards the inevitable end of philosophic contemplation, namely that the individual becomes more and more aware of the great intelligibles or eternals subsisting forever in nature and in time and in eternity, would naturally contemplate them would feel himself more and more akin to these vast principles which he had first discovered intellectually and later meditated upon intelligibly. This led toward the third part of Plato's career which has been termed the theological. And we know that in the last years of his life, perhaps the last 10 or 15 years, he wrote extensively upon what we would term today mystical subjects. Unfortunately, so far as is known, none of these writings have survived, or if they have, they have not been uh, revealed or given to modern scholarship. We know, however, that it was this change in Plato which caused the division between Plato and Aristotle, 
and finally resulted in Plato bringing his nephew Thucydides to become the head of his school, and Aristotle departed to the cinder track to create the school which has since carried the name the Peripatetic or Walking Philosophers, because they held this course while walking on the cinder track. Aristotle was unable to accompany Plato in his vast excursion into abstraction. But we know from the general tone of his later dialogues that Plato was moving more and more toward a very reverent attitude in relation to the great principles that lie at the roots of things. Philosophy with him had borne its natural fruit. It had released his intuitive and apperceptive powers, and these drew him toward the experience of the realities which, about which he had reasoned and thought. He intimates something of this in the Socratic dialogues where he causes Socrates to point out uh, that man is drawn inevitably toward the grave or toward the transition to another life in which either there will be darkness or else the person surviving as a spiritual being will find union with those principles and truths which he has sought and served, and will know through factual experience that which previously has been only theory, speculation, or judgment. And Plato himself moved precisely in this direction, and it is greatly to be regretted that his religious writings have not survived. The motion of Platonism itself, therefore, established a pattern a pattern which we have more or less ignored, but which was still alive and vital in the opening years of the Christian era, within three and a half centuries of the lifetime of Plato himself. Now with this background uh, relating to Platonism, we must come then to the transition to the Neoplatonic school of thought. Neoplatonism was rooted in the three cultures uh, which were passing into desuetude at that time. Neoplatonism perhaps had its original seat in Alexandria. If so, it had a secondary seat in Rome and a third in Athens. These three centers became the legs of the Neoplatonic tripod. And it was from this tripod that the oracles of this particular sect or group uh, were pronounced. The principal leader of the Alexandrian Neoplatonists was Plotinus, although the sect is said to have been created by Ammoniasacus, a slave, a carrier of burdens, a man of no known scholastic attainments, but a great natural intuitionalist. This original foundation led gradually toward the establishment of Neoplatonism in Rome through again the migrations of Plotinus and his establishment of a school in the Eternal City. Neoplatonism flourished in Rome and Alexandria for some time, and it was not until the early part of the 5th century that the foundations were established in Greece. This foundation, the important one, was set in motion by Proclus, who was one of the students of the older Platonic writings, also of earlier, less known Neoplatonists, and who has sometimes been referred to as the Platonic successor. Proclus was born in Constantinople, then Byzantium. He moved to Athens, where he spent most of his life in teaching. Finally, as a result of the uh, religious differences of the time, particularly uh, the intervention of Christianity, he was in exile for a short time in the Near East, but later returned and finally died in Athens. Proclus was a man of exceptional abilities, and he may be regarded as the last of the great lights of Neoplatonism. So we see the development of this school itself over a period of some 250 years, from Ammoniasacus and Plotinus, who were the, the originators or the creators of the basic concept. Uh, to Proclus of Athens, who was the last great representative, and finally to Boethius, who is sometimes called the last of the pagans. 
the last of the great line of philosopher mystics who basically clung to the ancient Greco-Latin uh, religious philosophy of life. Uh, these uh, followers, these disciples of the old way, were gradually exterminated, and the last of the pagan academies in the Roman Empire uh, were closed by the Emperor Justinian. So by degrees, Neoplatonism disappeared uh, from the theater of human action. But its disappearance has sometimes been said to be the beginning of its existence. For nothing that it accomplished during the 250 years in which it flourished uh, can compare with what it has accomplished in the 15 or more centuries since it perished. Thus we may say that the effect of the belief was vastly in excess of its temporal authority during the periods of its flourishing and survival. Now what is the essential difference, let us say, between the teachings of Plato and the New Platonism or Neoplatonism of Plotinus? It is a difference which is undoubtedly rooted in the points which we have previously made, namely that these civilizations had since the time of Plato fallen into decline and the entire world of the learned was suffering from a profound nostalgia. The old ways with their natural positive statements of life were not sufficient to meet the neurosis of dying dynasties and the change is exemplified in the motion of the philosophic system. Neoplatonism is then primarily to be defined as a motion of Platonism toward theology. In other words, it is the rise of Platonism as a religion. Now in Plato, we have most of the elements necessary for a theological system. Augustine of Hippo points out the weaknesses, and these weaknesses were the cause of the ultimate failure of Neoplatonism as a motion, as a motion in society. St. Augustine tells us, for example, that Neoplatonism had no martyr. It had no one at the beginning of it who was a superhuman divine figure, a tremendous catalyzing agent to draw and hold the imagination of people. It lacked the understandable dramatic person. Plato was not suitable to fulfill this need because of his tremendously rationalistic attitude toward life, the profundity and breadth of his knowledge, and the comparative simplicity and naturalness of his way. He was not surrounded by miracles. He was not an individual who made any claims to a divine heritage. He did not advance himself as in any way the peculiar mouthpiece of deity or of truth. He was simply what he claimed to be, a philosopher, a truth seeker. And uh, St. Augustine points out that this is not enough to hold and capture the fancies of multitudes of persons. The second thing that according to Augustine was deficient in Neoplatonism was a simple and natural program for the achievement of salvation. Uh, the process of platonic improvement, the individual bestowing all of his energies, concentrating all of his resources upon the tremendous substance of the search for reality, a search in which the student had to give all. Of St. Augustine said, could not and would not hold popular belief. Because popular belief does not want to sacrifice. It does not want to give up. It wants to have and be saved at the same time. It wants to keep its faults and have these forgiven. And there was nothing in Platonism to substantiate this concept. The third point that St. Augustine brought to bear upon the uh, subject was that in all and in substance, the doctrines of Neoplatonism were not understandable by those who had not devoted many years to scholarship, that the terms and thoughts were too abstract to gain any large popular following. 
For these reasons, Augustine correctly predicted that the sect as a sect could not survive, that it could not produce from itself a permanent, enduring church or an institution which could win and hold the imagination of generations then unborn. Uh, Augustine himself had many very complimentary things to say about Neoplatonism. And even when he claimed uh, to have separated from it, all of his writings are dominated by it. And one authority has stated not long ago that it is impossible to, de to detect the belief of the author of a book whether he be a Neoplatonist or a Christian, unless he makes specific reference to Christ. Otherwise, the works are so similar, so comparatively identical, that it is impossible with certainty to distinguish which sect the author belonged to. This perhaps is even more complicated by the fact that many of the thinkers of that time belonged to both sects and considered it in no way heretical or unreasonable. <coughs> uh, the Bishop Synesius of Alexandria accepted uh, ordination as a bishop in the Christian Church under the condition and proviso that he could remain a Platonic philosopher in his private life. And the Church accepted and ordained. So we have this uh, interesting uh, situation arising at the beginning of this belief, this sect. Now with this general representation of the difficulties, let us take a little time to examine some of the essential doctrines of Neoplatonism, particularly the compilation that was prepared by Proclus in Athens in the 5th century, and which, is, uh, which survives to us as the books of Proclus on the theology of Plato. Now, these books are no longer, as we say, known to exist, but it is possible that Proclus had access to manuscripts that have since been destroyed or have been buried or hidden where they have not been refound. But in any event, Proclus appears to have known or have made a very shrewd estimation of the dominant religious convictions of Plato during the closing years of his life. Now we remember also that this work of Proclus was one of the last of the Neoplatonic works. Therefore it represents the school in the closing cycle of its own brief but very spectacular existence. Deriving however much from Plotinus and other legitimate members of the Neoplatonic community Proclus unfolds what he regards as the true key uh, to the Greek theology. He roots it, of course, in the mythology and in the religious beliefs of the ancient Greeks. But he follows first Plato and then Plotinus in gradually reducing the essential elements of this mythology to a scientific system, to a philosophical pattern of conceivable principles. The first thing then we must approach is the combined view of Proclus, Plato, and Plotinus on the essential nature of being, in, the, in that all else suspends from this essential concept. In this way, of course, Plato differs strongly from Aristotle. Aristotle begins with what might be termed the phenomenal existence and ascends gradually toward a contemplation of abstract cause. Plato and the Neoplatonists begin with a positing of a conceivable abstract under the general concept of this intelligible being, a being beyond mind. Now this simple statement perhaps is the most important statement in all of Neoplatonism the existence of a being beyond mind. Now this was perhaps the first, also the first break uh, between Neoplatonism and the teaching of Plato. That is, that part of the teaching which we now know. 
it is very possible that this was the important change that Plato himself made. But we have no documentary proof of this. Certainly, however, the Neoplatonists lived much nearer to his time and might well have had access to a knowledge and tradition which we no longer possess. But Neoplatonism thus postulates a being beyond mind. Being beyond mind implies not only that it is beyond the mind of man, but that this being itself exists in a state superior to mind. Therefore, that this being is not mind, and nor can it be conceived by mind. Therefore, Plotinus insists that this being uh, can only be stated as an existent exact, uh, reality or fact, a fact in being itself, but may not be subjected to any definition or interpretation that this being subsists forever in itself, of itself, and by itself, that it is without quantity or quality, that it is without limitation, or as we would assume, lack of limitation, because even this term implies some kind of restriction. It is neither extreme of one or the other, plus or minus, but remains forever totally enclosing within its own eternity the concepts of both plus and minus. Therefore it is being capable of being conceived as containing both being and not being, and yet in no way being deficient in any of its own parts, because it is beyond mind, because its primary nature is not mental, the Neoplatonists affirm that the universe is not primarily a rational sphere. Now this becomes exceedingly important as we study this system. This caused a tremendous hue and cry against Neoplatonism, a hue and cry which has continued all the way down to 19th century England and early 20th century America. It has been affirmed that by this concept, Neoplatonism attacks science, even the sciences of the Greeks, that also Neoplatonism attacked philosophy because of its primary statement that reality is beyond mind. Now all your sciences are seeking for truth, and truth is a term to cover at least the concept of reality. Science is completely frustrated if truth is beyond mind. Philosophy is frustrated, uh, frustrated because if philosophy is the instrument of reason and truth is beyond mind, then reason cannot attain to truth. This is in itself apparently a simple point but it becomes pivotal, and a great deal of other thinking is suspended from it. The Socratic school, and to a degree Plato, had uh, created a triad, the one, the beautiful, and the good, to explain the nature of deity. Neoplatonism accepts the possibility of the term the good, as being negatively applicable to being, not as a definition, but merely as a convenient term for interchange between persons discussing such a subject. But they maintained that being transcends virtue to the same degree that it transcends mind. Therefore, that being per se transcends, period, Therefore, it cannot relate to, be similar to, or identical with anything less than itself. This procedure of thinking isolates the supreme being factor at the root of existence. It causes this root to exist in a pure state, unqualified and unconditioned, 
by even such terms as spiritual and mystical. It further points out that all attempt on the part of man to approach the nature of infinite being must to a large degree fail for the reason that man has no attributes available to him as a conditioned creature by which he can actually apperceive the total nature of unconditioned and unlimited existence. Time and eternity fall into the abyss together. Spirit and matter as opposites fade into something superior to themselves. Uh, creation objective and subjective merges into something that is objective subjective plus and for which no term is feasible or conceivable. Even the Chaldean statement of the thrice deep darkness at the root of life is not sufficient because the Neoplatonists affirm definitely that being is not darkness nor is being light. Therefore, it cannot be described in terms of light or dark. It cannot be determined in terms of sound or silence. It is simply, utterly, inconceivably transcendent. And because it is totally unconditioned, and because it possesses within itself no intellectual nature intrinsic to its own existence, it is, as they say, the infinite cause of infinites. And no being, no creature, no manifestation can any more circumscribe the potential of being uh, than he can uh, plumb the depths of being. Therefore, in a sense, the concept with being all things are possible comes to have meaning. All things implying not all known things, but all things known and unknown plus. And little by little, the concept of deity is elevated to such a complete abstraction that, as Augustine pointed out, the mind of man, in his own limited way, not only cannot follow the thinking, but cannot visualize the end of the quest. He cannot conceive either of peace or motion, of rest or infinity, of immortality or mortality. All of these things disappear into an infinite mystery, a mystery that is totality. And this totality is very reminiscent of the most abstract concepts of Brahmanic theology, in which Brahm, the infinite, the unconditioned, becomes known only by its productions, but remains itself forever, the invisible root, the unknown cause of all causation. Now obviously, this concept in itself challenge not only Greek theology, but Egyptian and Roman, it further challenged Christian theology, because it stood with such a tremendous state of complete aloofness that it found very little immediate association with the beliefs of other groups. Yet it may well be that in this concept, Protinus, Iamblichus, Porphyry, Sallust, were close to some abstract formula derived from Plato. Now in the Neoplatonic system, it is from this inevitable intelligible that exists only as a conjectural or conceptional entity that the universe emerges. Now we must pause with these persons for a moment before we go further because there is another fine point that we have to try and clarify. And obviously in a brief survey such as we can make we're not going to be able to clarify all of these points adequately. We can only touch upon them and hope that the picture leads to a constructive general 
uh, summation of the subject. These uh, Neoplatonists were concerned undoubtedly with the nature, the essential nature of this unknowable. And we find them breaking somewhat within themselves into two groups relating to this particular mystery. One group assumed that the conceptual or intelligible being had a total and complete existence, eternal and forever, in the vastness of the universe itself. The second group had already begun to isolate a psychological concept, namely the total being as a concept exists only within man. Therefore we have two systems, one that man exists within total being which is the reality, the other that the total being exists only in man and is therefore a conceptual creature or being which can be eternally affirmed but only exists because of the conceptual power of man himself. This could break and did break to form two great systems that are still fighting in the world today. But they were aware of this uh, possible interpretation and did everything they could to clarify their original meaning. In the Neoplatonic system this eternal, unconditioned existence, by its own inevitables, produces from itself that which is inferior to itself. And this emanation, or perhaps more completely and correctly, this power that oozed from it, that uh, descended out of its own nature simultaneously from all of its parts uh, the Neoplatonists the called Nous and this was the world mind now the world mind had by virtue of its own nature a complete and entire dependence upon being being, on the other hand, had no actual dependence upon mind. Mind was a condition. And in order for being to assume mind, being must first deny itself. Now we get very close to Buddhism. Where, that the, where intellect or mind itself is the first illusion. For it is the first restriction or limitation of that which is in itself eternal and inevitable. Uh, Pythagoras referred to mind as the second power or the power at the root of division and according to the Neoplatonists being having cause to emanate from its own nature noose or mind became captured or held within the net of the vast extent of its own mental or intellectual powers Thus the conceptual power gave birth to thought. And thought was a product of conception. And the conception is superior to the thought. Therefore there exists a faculty of conception in man's consciousness which is a creating power superior to mind. This all becomes a little difficult but it will clear as uh, somewhat at least as we proceed. Nous, or the world mind, is also identical in its essential substance with the world soul. Why, why did the Neoplatonists conceive the mind and the soul to be identical in this almost anticipating modern psychology? They replied, it is identical because mind is the inevitable root of reflection. It is the inevitable ordinator of conduct, the per perpetuator of records, the distinguisher of parts, and therefore is essentially the power by which man can reflect upon his own conduct, whereby man therefore becomes capable of the concept of good and evil, the concept of life and death the concept of beginning and end.
these things all being conceptual within man inevitably result in the arising in man himself of the compound of his energies and their testimonies or things done and their consequences and from this chemistry or alchemy therefore arises the soul power and the soul power in man is of its own substance and nature identical with the world soul and the soul in its turn creates from itself by the extensions of its own energies what we call the body and the body bears the same ratio to the soul that noose or universal mind bears to being the one point that the Neoplatonists particularly stressed was that the soul was a movable equation here again uh, they are uh, drifting very closely toward Eastern mysticism with which they may have had direct contact through Alexandria and the caravan routes the soul therefore has of its own nature three potential places of abode or conditions of existence soul may remain that is the human soul the individual soul may remain identical with the world soul this is intimated in the story of the prodigal son by the brothers who did not leave their father's house but remained at home the soul may become identical with itself that is the individual soul may individualize becoming therefore a living soul having a separate existence uh, to borrow a line from Faust twixt heaven and earth dominion wielding in other words it may exist in a state of suspension between the world soul and the body below which it has engendered or the soul the human soul may verge toward body become immersed in it and as a result of that lose its own identity by being submerged in or absorbed by the mystery of matter this is the burden of the great Gnostic hymn uh, the hymn of the robe of glory which is a variation again upon the theme of the prodigal son and this in turn is another variation upon the great theme of the wanderings of Odysseus in any event the soul therefore may remain with the world soul or it may become a separate being having its own existence or it may sacrifice its own natural existence and become absorbed in matter and the last in the story of Narcissus who seeing his reflection in the water uh, plunged into the pool to embrace his own reflection and was drowned this would be the descent of the soul into body uh, the uh, famous fable of Cupid and Psyche carries part of this story also uh, the fable was first originated and devised by Apuleius and in it it is pointed out that after Psyche the soul had descended into the lower worlds it ran about in a stumbling and erratic manner unable to follow a true course and this represented of course the soul involved in the complexities of a personal existence now here we have something also that we do not have in the older writings of Plato or in most of the uh, teachings of that time and namely the uh, gradual emergence of the concept of the human soul not merely as a part of a compound the soul no longer being merely the rational part of man but now beginning to take on its own true psychic content and to have a sympathetic relationship with body below and with universal soul above uh, the adventures of soul in Neoplatonism definitely indicate their belief that what we call man's soul life is really the enrichment of the soul potency 
by means of experiences either derived from the world or derived from the soul of the world. Those derived from the world are called experience. Those derived from the soul of the world are, are called intuition or apperception. The individual soul, therefore, has an internal contact with a superior source and an external contact with an inferior body. Through both of these contacts, energies flow into the soul. And in the ascent of man from a material to a regenerated condition, the Neoplatonists therefore taught that first the soul must be made comfortable in the body. Then it must be restored to its own life and finally it must be returned to the world soul or the universal life. Now in this concept then we begin to recognize that the Neoplatonists identified the conscious part of man with the soul. Now this was uh, also more or less according to the, Plat the Platonic system for the older Greek philosophers had no term for consciousness as we know it. To them, the consciousness of man was part of his psychic life. Here again, we come to the Eastern concept of the sattva, or self, which is not an eternal and imperishable being, but is merely the compound of the various attitudes, convictions, beliefs, ideas, attainments, and limitations of the complete psychic nature at any given time. So here we have the soul capable of returning to the world soul. And in this return, fulfilling its existence on a psychic, emotional, mental level. This in substance is the basic emphasis. And nearly all Neoplatonism is concerned mostly with this problem of the soul.